Our passage today is Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Well, good morning. On behalf of Beth, my wife, who just did that amazing reading, incidentally, uh, and myself, I just want to say that it's great to be back. And I kind of realized in the first service when I got up and said that, that like if you just started coming here in the last couple of weeks, you don't even know who I am. So um, as Matt says, oftentimes, uh, you know, I'm Tom. Uh, he doesn't say that, but he's, I'm one of the pastors here like Matt. And, and normally I do this, and so, but for the last four weeks or so, I have not been doing this, and for about three of those weeks, uh, we got out of town, which was really much appreciated and much needed. Uh, we had kind of an intense, a wonderfully intense season there in which, in the course of about four weeks, we had three of our kids graduate from three different levels of education, and we married off our first child to a wonderful and amazing young man that we are really thrilled about, but like at the end of all of that, we both had sort of a twitch, you know, in our eye, and so it was good. It was good to go up to North Carolina and enjoy that like we do every year. And it was really wonderful for me in particular to be able to just turn over this duty to some other people here on our staff and to just know these guys are going to kill it. They're going to do a great job. You know, you're used to hearing from Sam Smith, the headmaster of our school, and you're used to hearing too, I think, up here preaching and teaching from Ryan Brasington, uh, our worship pastor, and both of those guys took two of those weeks. But we also heard from Scott Carson, who is our pastor of Renewal. We heard as well, or you did, uh, from Mason Brown, who's our director of student ministries, who right now is in Haiti, so talk about a full week for him. Um, and for those guys, this was the first time that they ever preached a sermon on a Sunday morning and they knocked it out of the park, guys. They did a terrific and amazing job. And I want to publicly say how proud I am of them and really, you know, of the process that we were able to put into place to help them really succeed up on this stage and move on from here. You know, we see it as a part of our job to train people for the ministry, to train you for the ministry and to train people on our staff for the ministry. And the reality is, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, I don't know if those guys will be here or not. If they are, they can push me around in a wheelchair or something. So that'd be cool. But I know they'll be somewhere doing ministry and they'll be better for it for the development of their, not just their character, certainly that, but of their gifts and their abilities and their talents and and the opportunities that they've had to do that here. And so we take that responsibility very seriously. It is a trust from God, these people on our staff, as are you. And our job officially is equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so it's cool to be able to turn it over to those guys. But it's great to be back too. 
And it's fun to be back in our study of the Psalms this morning as well. And so today, as Beth read, we're coming to Psalm chapter 8, which unlike the first seven Psalms that we've looked at in this series, uh, is a praise psalm. And so maybe you're thinking, all right, so what is a praise psalm? Because it seems to me that every time you open a psalm, any psalm, doesn't it look like it's praising God, at least in some place? And of course it is, but a praise psalm is unique. It's different. There are different genres of psalms, and there's a clearly defined category called praise psalm. And so what I want to do is define it for you so you know what it is, and then we're going to look at it. And I'm going to give you the definition of the guy that I respect more than anybody else. I think he's the greatest living authority on the Old Testament, and particularly on the wisdom and poetic literature of the Bible and his name is Dr. Bruce Waltke, and he says this about praise psalms, and listen carefully, he says, praise psalms celebrate God's greatness and goodness, his lordship over the cosmos, over the created order as its creator, and his commitment to his people as their covenant-keeping God, don't miss this, who saves them, who saves us, so just personalize it, to do what? To fulfill their mission to rule the earth. How do you like that? You heard that before? That's something, isn't it? Like even if you're a believer and maybe you're, you know, a little bit familiar with that, but you don't understand completely what that means, that seems a little grandiose, does it not? I mean, most of us are just trying to learn how to control our kids, you know, and then after that we'll move out into the yard maybe, and then maybe we can begin to talk about the world. Rule the earth. Listen, if you're not a believer in Jesus, that might sound threatening. You start imagining what that might mean and you start thinking about, good grief, what does that mean? Like, Does that mean that they're going to try to put us down? Does that mean that everybody's going to try to control us? Does that mean that they're going to become the police? I mean, like, is this a governmental thing? Like, How exactly does that work? What does that mean and in what sense? Well, that's what Psalm 8 talks about. And David is so excited about the answer to that question that he gives to us in Psalm 8. And after he's done writing Psalm 8, he walks it down to the tent in which the Ark of the Covenant was located in that day. And he goes down and he finds the choir master, whoever that happened to be in that day. And he gives the psalm to the choir master. And he says, listen, this thing is too magnificent simply to read. So we need to sing it. I want you to set it to music and I want you to use a gatith. How many of you know what a gatith is? All right, so here's the deal. If you had the phone app, And if you had your push notifications turned on for personal worship on Monday, you would have gotten a picture of this guitar-like thing that is the Gatith. David, a musician, is excited. He's had a great and amazing revelation. He says, listen, we need to preserve this. It's so good we need to sing this. And not just us, but like all the people of God in every generation need to sing this. He brings it to the choir master. He, he probably brought his own gatith and says, here, just use this. Set it to music. Here's some ideas. And we know he did that because it begins with these words as Beth read. To the choir master, according to the gatith, a psalm of David who was almost certainly lying on his back, gazing up at the night sky and marveling over the created order, the sun, the moon, the stars at night. And he begins with these four words. David says this, he says, O Lord, our Lord, and I'm going to stop here knowing that that might frustrate a few of you who like to go fast, okay? But just stay with me for a second, it actually matters. Why does it matter? Because David is not writing in English, David is writing in Hebrew. It's being translated into English for us. And the first word translated into English for us as Lord is the name Yahweh. It is the covenantal name of our covenantal God who is called out of the world a unique people to do what? 
Well, to rule the world in some sense. And not in a threatening sense. We rule after the fashion of our Savior. Does He come to put down or lift up? Does He come to take or to give? Anyway, the first word Lord is that covenantal name. But the second word that's translated into English for us is Lord. It means master. It means commander. And so what David is really saying is he's saying, Oh, covenant-keeping God of this unique group of people in this world called Christians, who God is also our master, our commander, the one who deploys us and who sends us out into this world to rule over it, at least in some sense. How majestic is your name in all the earth? And here's what I thought as I looked at that this week. I thought it would be real easy for us to come in and as Jesus-loving, you know, God-loving people and, and to come in and to see one another and to sense the Spirit in, a, you know, in us and around us and all and through us and, and to sing songs and to do all of that kind of stuff and then to come to this part of the message and hear, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth and to just get carried away and go right on. That's true. Because it isn't. Is it? Is that what you experience? So like when you go to school or you go to the office or wherever you go, you turn on the news. Oh Lord, our Lord, this is what you think. How majestic is your name in all the earth? Is that what you think? It's not, is it? Oh Lord, our Lord, how profaned is your name in all the earth? How ignored is your name in all the earth? How rejected is your name in all the earth? How offensive is your name in all the earth that seems to be more in line with what we experience day to day living real life in a real world and yet david comes along and he says oh lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth so what's the explanation and you say well you know i don't know maybe that actually was true in david's day and that was his day-to-day -day experience and everywhere he went the name of the lord was majestic in all the earth yeah no that's not the case how do i know that just look at some of the other psalms psalm 74 verse 10 how long O lord is the foe to scoff now notice this is the enemy to revile your name forever so how was his name majestic in all the earth then back then it wasn't not in all of it. Psalm 79, verse 6, Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. They don't lift it up because they don't know it. So then is it majestic? Psalm 139, verse 20. David writing this psalm too. Same guy. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. And yet, here he is in Psalm 8, and what does he say? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So then what is David talking about? Like, how do you reconcile all of this? David, in the spirit of prophecy, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is looking forward in time. That's the prophetic gift. And he's seeing something that is not yet, but absolutely will be. And what is that? An eternal day in which God's name is revered and God's name is respected and God's name is worshipped and God's name is celebrated as being what it truly is, which is majestic. And it's celebrated as majestic in all the earth. And, and what David understands that we need to understand is that you and I, our mission, here's what we're to be doing. We're to be working actively toward the realization of that day. That's it. 
And so again, David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he looks up into the sky and he looks at the stars and the sun and all of these different things and he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. And by the heavens, he means sun, moon, and stars. And the image that he's creating us for us here is a military image. He's looking up at all of the stars and the moon and all of that stuff in the sky and he sees it as a heavenly host, as a heavenly army with God as its commander, its master. And biblically speaking, guys, it's an impressive army. What does the Bible say about the sun and the moon and the stars? All of these heavenly bodies that move above us and around us, they say, for example, that they are bright and pure. Isn't that true? You notice that? That they're beautiful and majestic. That they're enduring. That they're innumerable. Ever tried to count them all? And they're perfectly obedient. Think about that for a second. They march out day and night, day and night, day and night, day and night in perfect formation. Listen, long before there was Google Maps and GPS and navigation systems in our cars, long before there was a compass, how did people navigate land and sea? They did it by the stars. For they are perfectly obedient. They're perfectly predictable. It's remarkable. And so David, who's lying out, I think, under the stars, looks up and he gazes at the heavens and he says, you have set your glory, this, this host, this army above the heavens. You've put an army up there, Lord, and it's amazing. But then his mind turns to the earth and to a different army. It turns to us. The army of the Lord, not given over to fighting against people, but for them. And notice how he describes us because it's poignant and it speaks to how, at least in part, we are to rule the earth. He says in verse 2 that it's out of the mouth of what? Babies and of infants. Okay, so that's us, just in case you're wondering. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you, meaning our God and commander, have done what? Because it's very clear that he's going to have to do it if we're just babies and infants. Out of our mouths. Out of the mouths of babies and infants. You, our commander, have established strength. It means literally you have built a foundation of strength. But what do you build on a foundation? Like a building or something. So it's a foundation of strength upon which then what is built? Upon which a world in which God's name is actually celebrated as majestic in all the earth is built out of the mouth of babies and of infants. That's us. You, our God, have established strength. You've built that foundation. Why? Because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. To silence those, to gather up those, to purchase those, to redeem those who are willing and given faith. For whom God's name is not majestic. And so as you kind of work through that, for me at least, it raises three questions. And the first one is, why does he call us babies and infants? And I think that one's pretty easy. I, I think he calls us babies and infants because notwithstanding all of our gifts and energy and ability and talents and resources and this, that, and the other thing, the reality is that when it comes to building a foundation upon which a world in which God's name is universally proclaimed, celebrated, and worshipped as majestic is so far beyond us, that we are in fact powerless and helpless. We're like little babies needing the Lord to do it through us. And so then question number two, how does he do that? And the answer to that is obvious. He does it through our mouths. At least in part, that's a big deal. I mean, that's the thing 
that David here identifies primarily, he says, out of the mouth of babies and infants. Okay, that's the way that he does this. You are God, as established, built this foundation of strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So then question number three is, well, you know, like, how does he use our mouths to do that? And I want you to think about how to find the answer to a question like that. How would you go about looking for that? I think you just go into the Bible and you say, all right, so then how has God commanded me to use my mouth? And what has he told me to do with it? So the Lord God has commanded you and I, for example, to pray with our mouths. Has he not? And he has ordained that through the foolishness of prayer, because that's what it looks like, doesn't it? I mean, at least that's what it looks like to people who don't maybe believe in God or maybe don't believe in our God. And, you know, it's kind of like, who are you praying to? And where exactly does he live? And do you have a cell phone number for him? Can you even get him an email? Like, how do you know you're not just babbling off into nothingness and nowhereness? It looks like abject foolishness to someone who does not share your faith. And yet God has ordained that through that kind of weakness, if you will, his power will be released. It's prayer that changes lives. It's prayer that changes families. It's prayer that changes churches. It's prayer that changes cities. It's prayer that changes the world. And when it does, who gets the glory? Because God has designed everything so that He will. Sure isn't me. What can I do? I can utter the prayer. God answers it. So it's through the foolishness of prayer. But what else does He command you to do with your mouth? He commands you to praise commands you to worship. And worship is far bigger than the songs that you sing. It's, it's an all-encompassing thing. It gathers up every little aspect of your life and it weighs it off against God and says, yeah, you know what? He deserves this too. Oh, and He deserves this too. Oh, and He deserves this too. Oh, and He deserves this too. What you worship defines you. And it also determines the value of your life in terms of the only mission that in the end matters. It's remarkable, and so it's through the foolishness, if you will, of worship that God, again, changes lives, families, churches, cities, and the world. But then the other thing that I wrote down is that He commands us with our mouths to proclaim His gospel, to tell people about Jesus. Now, I want you to think about it. God has given us His gospel. He has given His gospel to His church. We are His army, if you will, down here. Not against people, but for people. But if we don't speak His word, no one else is going to do it. It's through the foolishness of the gospel, Paul says. The power of God unto salvation is revealed. It was revealed to us, and it's to be revealed through us. And so David is taking all of this in, looking up at the stars, and he's blown away. He says in verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your what? Of your, of your arms? Of your whole body? Of your mind? It actually matters. Of your fingers. Why does that matter? What do you do with your fingers? Things that require a lot of fine detail. You know, like you put a little model together with your fingers, do you not? It's like the whole universe is a toy. It's small, you see? 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, he says, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And then when my mind, my heart, my eyes return down to earth and I look at myself and everything and everyone else, here's the question that I have. He says, I wonder what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. And if you've ever actually considered your own size in light of the universe, we'll start with that. Yeah, you may wonder the same thing. And you can start with our own son. Okay, so there's our sun. Our sun is 835 miles in diameter. So what that means, practically speaking, is that if you're on this side of the sun and you want to go directly through the middle of the sun to the other side of the sun, yeah, it's an 835,000-mile trip. Our sun right now is located 93 million miles away from us. It feels like it's located 9.3 miles away from us. I get that. It's unfortunate. But that's not a trip around the block. And our sun is a star. It's the star of our particular solar system. You can take a look at our solar system. And the solar system seems big to you, doesn't it? Good grief, it's huge. No, it's just almost nothing. It's a tiny little part of the Milky Way galaxy in which all of us reside. And if you want to know, you know, approximately where the solar system is, and you, smile, there you are. There you are. It's remarkable, isn't it? Just so you understand the size of our solar system relative to the size of the Milky Way galaxy, it's approximately the same as the size of a quarter, okay, relative to the entire landmass of North America. Does that help? Listen, I can lose a quarter in the couch, okay? And what I've discovered is I can lose anything in a purse. Just know that. I just can't. When I'm looking for something, Beth says it's in her purse, I just bring her the purse. I, I can't, I just, I'm gone. I can't do it. A quarter compared to North America. And so you think, well, then the galaxy is big. Actually, the galaxy is not all that big. I mean, comparatively speaking. Our galaxy is basically an average-sized galaxy, and by that I mean that it's only 100,000 light-years wide. And so, if you want to travel from one side of the Milky Way galaxy to the other side of the Milky Way galaxy, and, and this is an important qualifier, you're capable of traveling at 186,000 miles per second, or 5.88 trillion miles per year, you can do it, but it's going to take you 100,000 years. Okay, and then our galaxy is only one galaxy amongst hundreds of billions of galaxies. So here's what I'm not trying to get you to do. I'm not trying to make you feel small right now. Um, what I'm trying to do is to help you to see uh, that you are, in fact, small. Relative to the universe, okay, all of us, uh, yeah, we're just a speck on a planet that is itself just a speck, in a solar system that is itself just a speck, in a galaxy that is itself just a speck. But that's not the comparison that David is making here, is it? He's not saying, look up at the stars and feel small. He's saying, when I look up at the galaxy that I live in and at the universe that's out there, Lord, you created all of that with your fingers? Like a toy model? Like an artist working on a little carving? So then how big is he? 
That's the comparison. And I want to ask you this morning, how big is God to you? And I understand intellectually that I've just convinced you that he's a whole heck of a lot bigger than you. I got it. That's not what I'm asking. As you survey your life, how big is he? And specifically, is he bigger than you? So David, who's staring up at the stars, is blown away by the size of God who is so much bigger than him that he says, my goodness, how can you even consider us? Like, how did we even make your radar? Like, how do you pay any attention to us, much less love and redeem us? J.I. Packer says that we live at the end of four centuries of God shrinking. God seemingly gets smaller, he says, while we seemingly get bigger. However, the Bible does not see it this way. David does not see it this way. And of all the peoples of the earth, we must not see it this way. And so David, who's staring at the stars and contemplating the immensity of God, says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then he says, and the son of man, that you care for him, which is interesting because the words care for there means literally that you visit him. So what he's saying is, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care so much that you would come to visit him, which is exactly what he did in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. Isaiah comes to us in Isaiah 40, and he tells us that our God is so big that he can measure off the universe with the span of his hand. And yet, the gospel tells us that our God is so humble that he condescended to become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. He became a a speck on a planet that's a speck in a solar system that's a speck in a galaxy that's a a speck in a universe that he kind of created like like a model, you know, like with his fingers for you. It's a remarkable thought. Isaiah says in the same verse, he tells us that God's so immense that all of the oceans, which incidentally comprise approximately 66 million cubic miles of water, are but a drop in his hand. And the gospel comes along and says, yeah, but God is so loving that he spread out his hands in the person of Jesus Christ and he offered his perfectly righteous, infinitely valuable life To do what? To buy back you and me. And why did we need to be bought back? Because we had taken our lives and lived them for ourselves. We're bigger than God, right? No. So David says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him enough to visit him, and yet you have made him only a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor? What glory and honor? Well, first of all, we bear the image of God. We're not animals. He's given us capacities that, that we have that nothing and no one else in all the universe has, incidentally, which kind of adds value. But also the glory and honor of his mission which is to thankfully give our lives away in such a way as to contribute to the advent of the eternal day in which his name is majestic in all the earth. To that end, he says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, domesticated animals, and also the beasts of the field, wild animals, the birds of the heavens who fly above us and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along below and the paths of the seas. And David once again then looks forward to the day when our mission is done. And he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's saying, listen, I see it, even though it isn't here yet, it will be. And it's beautiful. And our mission, like his, 
is to help bring it to pass. And you say, well, you know, what does that look like? I mean, what do I do, practically speaking? And I think part of that has already been answered. For one thing, we pray and believe in the power of it to change lives and families and cities and churches and, and the world. For another thing, we praise. We orient our lives around the one who actually is large and ultimately of value. And that's Him. And we worship Him with the praise of our mouths and every other aspect of our lives as well. And we proclaim His gospel. We make Him known, guys. We speak as well as act. And we tell people about Jesus. I think that's a large part of it. But I think another piece of it is that we're to learn to live like the stars. And I say that because it's very clear that David is comparing the heavenly host above, the army of God in the skies, to the heavenly host below, the army of God in the earth, which is his church. And he's comparing us in such a way as to give the clear impression that one is to look a lot like the other, and so rehearse it with me then. That means that we are to be bright and pure. I mean, look at the stars. They do not succumb to the darkness, and in fact, they pierce it from unfathomable distances, at least from our teeny tiny little perspective. We're to be beautiful and majestic. The stars transcend the earth, do they not? All the chaos below, all the stuff that sucks and pulls us under, and they just float and glide by beautifully, decorating the earth, making it more beautiful. There is a different kind of wisdom that God calls you to live by. There is a different spirit than the spirit of the earth who God calls you to be inhabited by and empowered by. You and I are not to be sucked down into all the stuff that sucks everybody else down. It'll happen at times, guys. I get that. But there is a transcendence, a difference, a beauty that we ought to bring to our families and workplaces and whatnot as we learn to reflect Christ, the ultimate star. We're to be enduring Stars are constant. They don't shut off. They can be obscured by the clouds. You can hide from them inside. You can do that. But they're always there and they're always shining. Even when the sun is up and you can't see all the other stars because of the light of the sun, they're still out there. They're still sending their light. And they're innumerable. They don't stand by themselves. It's not like there's one star out there and we go, hey, there's our star, you know? I mean, you can't count them. And like them, you can't stand alone. We're made to live in community. An army for the good of humanity in humility and love works together. That's the idea. And then, of course, we're to be obedient. You know, the stars march in and out, and they're perfect at it, and I'm not. You know, like, I don't know if you are. So if you are, you might not want to mention it because nobody will like you after that. But, but really, so we're not quite as perfect as them, are we, in our obedience? But there's grace for that. And I want you to think about this. Jesus didn't die for them. But he did die for you. So who's more valuable? Pretty simple equation. So we're at the end. And here's what I don't know. I don't know what learning to live like a star looks like for you. Okay? So as you go through the list, bright and pure, beautiful, majestic, enduring, innumerable, obedient, all that stuff. You know, I could stand up here and I can give you 100,000 different examples and illustrations and so on and so forth. Or... Instead, I could say, listen, I don't know what that list or what this message requires of you or means for you, but the Holy Spirit does, and He's a far better communicator than I am. My guess is He's already told it to you, but if not, then I would encourage you to pray and say, you know what, Lord, in light of this, 
What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to feel? How do you want to love me in this? How do you want to instruct me in this? How do you want to correct me in this? How do you want to comfort me in this? And let him do his work. Because he will. Okay? So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, Lord, we thank you that indeed there is a host in heaven that day after day and night after night speaks of your majesty and your glory. But we thank you for the host on this earth too. We thank you for the people that you have called to faith in yourself, that you have redeemed through your son who became a, a speck on a speck in a speck in a speck that is itself a speck. You became little that you might save us. And for that, you are all the bigger. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move among us, that he would speak to us, that he would you know, comfort us, that he would fill us with an overwhelming sense of, of your love and of, of your grace and, and of your mercy, but that he would call us and, and instruct us in your wisdom and, and guide us by your correction too and empower us, Lord, to be better participants in this movement that ends in the day that David sees, a day in which your name is majestic in all the earth. Lord, we long for that day. And I pray that we work this day towards it in Jesus' name. Amen.